Well, this morning we are finally back in the book of James. Uh, after a couple of months off, uh, rolling into the, the holiday season, Advent, uh, Christmas, into the new year. And so I'm glad that we are back in, uh, in this profound letter. In fact, I'm pretty excited about the passage uh, that we're in today. And I, and I want to remind you, uh, one of the aims, really the primary aim for James, and in the words of one biblical scholar, it is this. He is seeking to show us the difference between mere profession of faith and real possession of it. The difference between just professing faith and truly possessing it, truly having a real living faith. And so as we enter back into James, we find ourselves in a section of his letter where he is focusing on Christian community, Uh, the struggles of dissension and division, and the ways to cultivate a healthy, growing community and unity. Now, at times, I realize that it can be easy to read parts of James as an angry reprimand, okay? I mean, he uses such strong language in places. And if you think some of it is strong today, wait till we get to next week, because he begins chapter 4, it's pretty strong. But to see it to see it as that it is really to miss the very heart of James. I mean, think about this man. You know, James James knows what it is like to be merely religious, to to profess salvation and yet to miss the Savior. And yet the Savior, Jesus, his half-brother and whom he did not believe, Jesus graciously appeared to James and to opened his eyes right after the resurrection. And so, I mean, if you want to think about being humbled, you think about being a guy who grew up with Jesus, okay? He, James grew up with Jesus, but, but for so much of the time was probably only seeing him as that, that annoying older brother who always seemed to get everything right. I mean, th- this is a guy who lived with Jesus day in and day out and yet missed who he really was. And he didn't believe, didn't believe Jesus to be the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And so what we have before us is a man who has been humbled and gentled. And so we find now someone who is a compassionate believer with a shepherd's heart. And he offers to us passionate pastoral exhortation so that we too could live out of the reality of God's grace. So the place we find ourselves this morning, our passage is James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 18. And before we hear this part of God's Word, uh, let's go to Him in prayer. Well, our good and gracious God, we we do thank You again for Your Word, Your life-giving Word, Your eternal Word for the good news of your your saving grace that is proclaimed in it. And we would ask once again that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that we might hear 
understand, believe, and be changed. Amen. We'll hear now the Word of God. Uh, This is James chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this is God's Word. So in in our passage this morning, uh, James helps us see three things about wisdom. Uh, What wisdom looks like, where wisdom resides, and why wisdom matters. Uh, What it looks like, uh, where it resides, and why it matters. And so first, what wisdom looks like. And, And let's start by defining wisdom. So wisdom can can be defined simply as the art of skillful living. Uh, Another fuller definition puts it this way. Wisdom is the ability to see and build relationships of all sorts. It is the ability to take things that are seemingly unrelated, discern how they connect, and then fit them together into a relationship. Uh, Wisdom is the ability to take disparate things and put them into a whole. And for our context, James 3, wisdom is the ability to live in such a way that we don't kill ourselves and kill other people. Okay, verse 13. James summarizes wisdom with two words, good conduct. Good conduct. He says, by his good conduct, let him show that he is wise. Or as the the NIV puts it, by his good life. Okay, and actually the the word life helps us better hear what what James is saying because he's getting at a a way of life, a lifestyle, how we live. It's not just about behavior, being on your best behavior, so to speak. And and you know, when we often think of wisdom, uh, so much of the time we think of it as being something that's that's intellectual, that, that maybe it's about cleverness, But one of the things that we're going to be seeing over the next little bit together is that wisdom is fundamentally relational. And so that brings us to the other word, good. By his good life, let him show that he is wise. By his good life. Okay, and and there are two words for good in Greek. One word is agathos. Uh, It's the more general uh, word for good. Uh, I had a good day. That meal was good. How you doing? I'm doing good. Well, the other word is kalos. A kalos, it's, it's a more focused, 
more specific meaning, uh, referring to something that is good in the sense that it is overwhelmingly big and beautiful, that it is attractive. Okay, so you, you, you might think about being at, at the beach and, and watching the, the sunrise over the ocean or, or, or watching a beautiful sunset over the James River or maybe uh, being on top of a mountain. In fact, as I was, was studying this word, it reminded me of, I think it was a couple of summers ago, our family, uh, we, we were in, in the western part of the Commonwealth, we were in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and, and we hiked to the top of one of the peaks of Peaks of Otter. And when we were standing up there, it, 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 was, it was a phenomenal day, and of course you see all the different colors of, of green and blue, you see the, the other mountain peaks, you see the valley below, you see some low-lying clouds, you see clouds above, and, and I captured this picture of, of one of my daughters just standing there like this, arms out, just looking. Why? Because she was captured by the, the goodness of it, the beauty of it, the kalos of it. And that is the word that James uses in our passage. Okay, James is saying, who is wise among you? It's the one who has a, a beautiful life a good, beautiful way of life. Okay, so you, you might think of it as we're thinking about the differences in, in, in good, you might think about it as the difference between a, a musician playing a, a technically sound piece. Okay, it, it, it sounds good and technically it is good. But maybe it, it doesn't move you. But then when you put a whole lot of these musicians together, the, the difference between that, that individual, and then a symphony orchestra where you not only hear the music, but you feel the music, how it just, it just lifts you. It, it may even move you to tears because it is so beautiful. You know, think about film today. A film would be nothing that it is without the music that is, that is often behind it. You think about the, the musical scores and what they do, how they bring you into the story. You know, John Williams, probably a best-known uh, composer when it comes to film. Uh, you, you think of all the Indiana Jones films, the most recent one included. Uh, you, you've, got, you've got E.T., you've got Jurassic Park, and then you've got, you know, Star Wars that's spanning three decades. But, but how that, that music, it invites you in, but not only does it invite you, it actually lifts you up and carries you into the story through the beauty and power of that music. And so what James is getting at here is that as Christians, our lives should be like that, okay? Beautiful lives that are reflecting, it's not our own beauty, beauty but it is reflecting the glory of God in whose image we are made. That, that we are living lives that, that are individually and collectively, as the church, lives that, that, are, that are beautiful lives, lifting others up and bringing them in to the gospel story, the reality of God's grace. And so hopefully you're beginning to see that, that wisdom is fundamentally relational. And that's because it is ultimately about human flourishing. Okay, so that's a bit about what wisdom looks like, and we're going to come back to it in just a moment. But, but for now, let's, let's move on in our passage. And so next, where wisdom resides. And where does wisdom reside? 
Well, the answer, verse 14, it's your heart. In your heart, that's where wisdom lives. Now, I, I want to take you back a little bit earlier into chapter 3, because I, I want, and you can obviously look back and see the editorial heading there, but remember that James has just finished talking to us about the place and the power of the tongue, about how we, about how we speak, how we speak about others, how we speak to others, and, and saying in verse 9 that we what? That with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and also with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And then, and then at the end of his analysis, verse 12, James goes straight to the heart, saying that, that only when the source is pure will the outflow be pure too. So the obvious question then is, so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the heart? And James replies by explaining that there are two types of wisdom. There's false wisdom from below, which brings about division and destruction. And then there's true wisdom from above, which brings about life, health, wholeness, human flourishing. But very briefly before we move forward, we need to clarify an important word here. And the, and the word is heart. What does heart mean? Because so much of the time when we use it, we're not using it in the way that the Bible uses it. And so here, here's a very helpful summary uh, from Dane Ortland. When the Bible speaks of the heart, whether Old Testament or New, it is not speaking primarily about our emotional life, but about the central animating center of all we do. It is what gets us out of bed in the morning, what we daydream about when we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart, in biblical terms, is not part of who we are, but rather the very center of who we are. Our heart is what defines and directs us. Okay, the very center of who we are our motivational headquarters, that, that which directs everything that we feel, yes, but also that which we think, what we will, what we do. And James says, that's what we've got to deal with, the very center of who we are. Is the outflow of our heart false wisdom or true wisdom? Is it death or is it life? So picking up again, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So clearly, this is the false wisdom. The false wisdom from below. It's the worldly wisdom that is not godly wisdom, and thus it isn't beautiful. It isn't life-giving. I mean, just look at the words that he uses to describe it. Selfish ambition. And I mean, the qualifier says it all, doesn't it? Selfish, self-centered, self-promoting, all about self. In other words, 
pride. And then there's the phrase bitter jealousy, meaning an, an angry envy within. My desire to have what you have and for you to have nothing. And so it's me, 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 me with a little twist of poison. In fact, the word translated here, bitter, is the very same word that you'll find up in verse 11, translated salt. If your heart is filled with salt water, then bitterness will flow from it. And I want you to note that it says, if you have, okay, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And, and the sense here is that if you harbor these things, okay, if you harbor them, because truth be told, we all have them. We all struggle, or just to use James' uh, words at the beginning of chapter 3, we all stumble in many ways. And, and, and so the, the issue is, is not whether or not we have them, but whether or not we harbor them, that we are cultivating this, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this poison in our hearts. And so what's the antidote to a proud heart? Well, it's found back in verse 13. And it's that phrase, the meekness of wisdom. Kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? The meekness of wisdom. And then that phrase gains more color when you go down to verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And clearly this is true wisdom, true wisdom from above, which is beautiful, which is life-giving. And so it's a great list, doesn't include everything, but James is getting at several things. It, 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 is, it is peaceable. In other words, it loves peace, peace-loving. It's gentle and thus kind. Uh, probably the, the characteristic that grabbed me the most was it is open to reason. Okay, what, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that you are easily persuaded, but it does mean that you are open to being persuaded. It does mean that you are, are open to, to, to gracious conversations with others and, and are willing to, to rethink your position on things. You're open to reason. And all of these descriptors characterize the meekness of wisdom. But what in the world is meekness? Because it, if you're like me, then I'm sure you're thinking, this is not going to make it as like a strength on my resume. I'm not going to list this. Meekness. What are your strengths? I'm meek. So that means we need to clarify uh, what, what, what this word is all about. And so let's start with this fact that meekness is not as many of us think a weakness. In fact, meekness has nothing to do with weakness. They rhyme, but that's about as far as it goes. Okay, and, and how do we know that meekness has nothing to do with weakness? Well, we know in part because the only two people in the entire Bible that are explicitly described by this word, the two, only two people, Moses and Jesus. Okay, Moses 
in Jesus, far from weak and cowardly. I mean, you've got Moses who confronted Pharaoh over and over and over, demanding, let my people go. And then, of course, more profoundly, you have Jesus confronting sin and death, demanding, let my people go. And so it definitely doesn't have anything to do with weakness. Well, then what is it? And so to start, we, we take the Greek word, which is translated elsewhere in the Bible as gentle, humble, kind. And then as we take those translations and, and we put them in context, we'll begin to see what it, what it really is all about. And so to put it in context, I want you to think back to the, the Beatitudes, okay? Jesus is a famous Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And you get to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And interestingly enough, James pulls a lot from the Beatitudes throughout his letter. And so Jesus is speaking of things that characterize those who are blessed. Uh, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And he, he, he lists the, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the pure in heart, and so on and so on. So let's take the first one he lists. Blessed are, are, are the poor in spirit. Okay, so poverty in spirit, poverty of spirit is mainly about one's assessment of themselves with respect to God. And then meekness is more about one's relationship to God and others in light of that self-assessment. So poverty of spirit is about knowing the depth of your sin and brokenness and thus, thus your radical need of God's grace. And meekness is how that self-assessment then plays out in the way that you relate to other people. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The person who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man could think as well of him as they do and could treat him as well as they do. This makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient, and kind in all of his dealings with others. And so you might, uh, you might think of it like this. Take the golden rule and, and just change it up a bit. Do unto others as God has already done unto you. Okay, that's the meekness of wisdom. And guess what? There's more. There's more because it's interesting to note that the Greek word translated meek was one of the great words in Greek ethics. Okay, Aristotle taught that, that meekness should be something that is highly desired, and he described it this way. He described it as the midpoint between anger and indifference. In, in, in other words, the middle ground between, between an extreme anger and the inability to even care. And that midpoint is best described as determined gentleness. Determined gentleness. A, a determined purposeful gentleness in the way that we relate to others. So some of you know that, that in a former life, I was a snow ski instructor out in Colorado. 
And one of the things that, that we loved as ski instructors were the days that we came in and we were assigned private lessons. And, and there's several reasons for that. I mean, one is instead of having to deal with a big group, you got to deal with one, two, maybe three people tops. Uh, also, the, the people uh, paying for the, the private lessons, they had to pay more money than for a group lesson, and so that meant we got paid more. Uh, often there were big tips at the end of private lessons. Uh, another thing that was great about it is, is, is private lessons meant that you would often just ski. I mean, there were full-day privates, but most people just did a half-day. And so if you didn't have anything assigned you after lunch, then you could just ski the rest of the day, which is why we were there in the first place, right? And then, and, and then one of my favorite things also was that a lot of the people that got private lessons, they already knew how to ski, they just, they had money, they were trying, trying to figure out how to spend it, and they're like, well, we'll just get somebody to give us some pointers. And so you'd just be skiing all over the mountain. Those were the best days. So I came in one morning, and I was assigned a private lesson, and I was pretty excited about it. And I find out, found out that several of us uh, had, had private lessons that day. Because what it turned out is that there was this, this large company, it was a privately owned company at the time, uh, it was worth over a billion dollars, and they were having their executive retreat at our resort. And so all of the execs and, and their spouses, if their spouses were, were along, all of them uh, were given private lessons. And so I think there were about 10 or 12 of, uh, of these executives. And so me and a, and a bunch of my, my ski instructor friends were, were assigned to the various ones. So I meet the vice president, who I'm, I'm going to get to teach that day. I meet him and his wife. I'm looking forward to the day ahead. We get our skis, our poles, we're, our, we walk out to, uh, to the, the slope, and I say, well, tell me a little bit about your, you know, your background with snow skiing. And the guy looks at me and he says, I've never done it in my entire life. And I go, uh-oh. Because this guy is probably in his, his early 60s. I know that he is wealthy. I know by his position that he is very powerful and accomplished, and that he is used to doing everything right and well. And I'm about to say, hey, let's put some slick boards on the bottom of your feet and go on the slick surface called snow. <laughs> so we're supposed to have this three-hour lesson, and I'm already sweating it. Three-hour lesson, and then afterwards, all of the instructors and their clients, the execs, were all supposed to then meet at the bottom of the mountain in the lodge at a private dining room for lunch together. And I'm already thinking, this is going to be a long day. Well, to my surprise, that three-hour lesson lasted for less than 30 minutes. About 20 or, or 20, 25 minutes into the lesson, the guy throws his skis and poles on the ground, says, I've had it. I am done with this. He thrusts his hand in his pocket, pulls out a wad of cash, and thrusts it in my direction. And I just said, I said, sir, look, I, I'm sorry this has not been a good experience I cannot accept this. And then he looks at me, and with all this sternness he could muster, he said, Camper, when you make as much money as I do, then you can refuse this. And he dropped the cash and walked away. So I picked up the money, I put it in my pocket, and I, and I went and skied for a couple hours. But I mean, I felt... Okay, that wasn't supposed to be funny. <laughs> but 
But, but you can imagine, I mean, I can already see it on your face. You can imagine how I felt. I mean, I couldn't put words on it in the moment, but I mean, as I'm skiing, I'm feeling this small. I mean, I have had someone who has just disrespected me, uh, disregarded me, and, and I couldn't figure out why I felt so bad. And then finally, the 12 o'clock hour comes around, and I reluctantly ski to the bottom of the hill, and I go into the private dining room uh, in, the, in the lodge, and there's all these people in there, and immediately I notice the vice president sees me and makes a beeline for me, and I'm thinking, oh, man. And he comes straight up to me and without hesitation says, Camper, I owe you an apology. I am so sorry for the way that I treated you this morning. I, I was frustrated. I got, I got angry. I felt embarrassed. And I took it out on you. And I am sorry. And I, I, was, I was clearly, I was taken aback. And, and I simply responded, well, well, thank you. I forgive you. And then he smiled and he said, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, I am too. And God is still at work in my life. Friends, God had worked meekness into this man. A humble and gentle attitude toward me which was rooted in a true estimation of himself before God and others. And what he demonstrated in that moment was a beautiful life rooted in and extending God's grace. And that's the determined gentleness of wisdom. And this wisdom from above resides where? It resides in the hearts of those who continually trust in God. But so what? I mean, in the big scope of things, why, why, why does this matter? And of course, that leads to our final point. Lastly, why wisdom matters. And why does it matter? Well, simply put, it is the difference between life and death. Okay, that's, that's what the text says. I mean, we see that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition lead to disorder and every vile practice. Whereas a beautiful life expressed through the meekness of wisdom leads to what? A harvest of righteousness. And so you see, we are either producing human misery full of disorder and decay, or we are giving birth to human flourishing, full of beauty and peace. And rather than a, a harvest of weeds, James is calling us to cultivate a harvest of, of shalom, a total flourishing in every dimension, every sphere of life. James calls us to live beautifully wise lives, okay? And, and, and not just individually, I mean, yes, individually, but also collectively as the church, as the body of Christ. He is calling us to, to beautiful lives, to, to being beautifully wise so that we might cultivate a community of true hope and healing and health and wholeness, but friends, not just for ourselves, 
but also for the hurting world around us that others might see Jesus too. This has as much to do with mission to the world around us as it does to our own growth in care and comfort. That's why wisdom matters. Well, I want to end where we began. Verse 13, who is wise among you? The answer, verse 18, the one who makes peace. The one who makes peace is the one who is wise. Because you see, ultimately, wisdom is a person. And his name is Jesus. And as it says in Colossians, Jesus has made peace through his blood shed on the cross. And as we look to him, we become more and more like him. In Christ, our hearts are already filled with the fresh water of the Holy Spirit. They already are. And yet we often muddy the waters, don't we? We often muddy the, the, the waters of, of our hearts, making them salty, brackish, by harboring selfish pride and bitterness. But here's the thing about drinking salt water. It makes you thirsty, doesn't it? You drink salt water, it makes you thirsty. And so what that means is that deep down, deep down for all of us, we are all thirsty. We all yearn for, we all crave for fresh water, to, to tap into that fresh spring of clean water in our hearts. And the good news is this, because Jesus says to you and to me, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of fresh living water. And so brothers and sisters, continually look to Jesus. Continually drink of his grace day after day after day and become more and more beautifully wise, just like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, oh Jesus, how we, we thank you. We thank you for being completely, fully, beautifully wise. And we ask now that by the power of your indwelling spirit, that you would continue to change us and shape our lives, that, that our lives would, would more and more bear the fruit of life, would breathe life into one another, into the world around us through the determined gentleness of wisdom. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.